Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16. We are continuing our discussion of the church doctrinal statement. I was telling a few people that I, uh, we, my wife, we, uh, watched grandkids uh, six days this week and six days last week. I did learn something, though. We had two of them overnight on Friday, and he, three, Noah, two and a half, uh, I, I learned how he communicated. He says, Papa, do you want a drink of water? And what he's waiting for is for you to say, Noah, do you want a drink of water? And he says, yes. <laughs> Papa, do you want to get down? And I'm going, I'm not on anything. But he's waiting for you to say, Noah, do you want to get down? So that you can get him out of his high chair. You just have to learn how they communicate. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about the church. If you're looking at the doctrinal statement, you realize that there's a section between what we did last week and the church, which deals with the Holy Spirit. Well, we actually talked about the Holy Spirit uh, in the second lesson when we talked about the nature of God. But we kind of went over it pretty quickly, so I'm going to just run through the list from the doctrinal statement about what the Holy Spirit does. And part of the reason I'm doing this is that my wife and I are rereading J.I. Packer's Knowing God, and he has a whole essay in there about the fact that we as Christians talk about God the Father a lot, and we talk about Jesus a lot because, you know, this is salvation and all that. And sometimes we overlook the necessity of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if we are worried that if we talk about the Holy Spirit too much, People will begin to think we're charismatics, and we certainly don't want that, so we just kind of ignore the topic. But the doctrinal statement says the Holy Spirit has certain ministries, restraining of evil in the world to the measure of the divine will. What does that mean? You and I read the newspaper, we read the magazines, we watch the news, and we think the world is really in trouble. But you know, right, that the world is not as bad as it could be. I mean, it could be worse. We know places in the world where it's worse. And we acknowledge the fact that the Holy Spirit is a restraint on people being as bad as they could be. And we view that as a very good thing. Convicting the world, respecting sin, righteousness, and judgment. And if we were going to spend the whole time talking about the Holy Spirit, there are verses that go with each of these. But you know this is to be true, right? You know, I can sit here and tell you that a certain activity is sin, and you'll go, but it's a lot of fun. Everybody does it. What's the problem? But at some point, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you and says, don't do that. That is is evil. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, the necessity of righteousness, and the reality of coming judgment. Uh, regenerating of all believers. The Holy Spirit moves in us and causes us to accept 
the work that Jesus has done for us, indwelling and anointing of all who are saved, thereby sealing them into the day of redemption. This is important to today's lesson because we're going to talk about the church and we're going to talk about the church being all the believers who have received the Holy Spirit, regardless of where they are geographically located, where they are denominationally located, where they are in time, all believers are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them us into the one body of Christ of all who are saved, that is, the church. And continuing filling for power, teaching, and service of those among the saved who are yielded to him and who are subject to his will. I've told you before, this has happened more times than I can think. I read the Bible, I read some verse, and I have no idea what it means. I just don't. I mean, you may be brighter smarter, whatever. And then years later, I'll be in some situation or I'll be reading something or listening to something and I just get this prompting, you know that verse you didn't understand? This is what it means. It's like, oh, okay. So this is a very quick rendition of the chapter about, I mean, the uh, paragraph about the Holy Spirit. On to the church. This is the doctrinal statement regarding the church. We're going to read it in its entirety, and then we're going to break it down piece by piece. We believe that all who are united to the risen and ascended Son of God are members of the church, which is the body and bride of Christ, which began at Pentecost and is completely distinct from Israel. Its members are constituted as such regardless of membership or non-membership, in the organized churches of earth, we believe by the same Spirit all believers in this age are baptized into and thus become one body that is Christ, whether Jews or Gentiles, and having become members one of another, are under solemn duty to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, rising above all sectarian differences and loving one another with a pure heart fervently." This is the church. Before we advance too far, we need to understand a distinction between the church and the church. Okay? In my mind, and this is just the way I think, I think of the church with a capital C. The church is the collection, the body of all believers regardless of where they are located, we just went over this, regardless of where they're located, what denomination they belong to, what time in history they exist, the church is the body of all believers. But Christ Chapel is a local church. And there are thousands hundreds of thousands of local churches. And sometimes we're talking about the local congregation, the, in my mind, lowercase c, church. Sometimes we're talking about the church, universal. 
And we need to understand this because the church local is made up of an interesting group of people. Some of which are not believers. No, I'm not looking at anybody. The scripture acknowledges the fact that you can join a local group, you can participate in the activities of Christ Chapel Bible Church, you may come because you like the music, you like the friends, you like the whatever it is, and still not be a member of the capital C Church. Now, I would love to think that if you sit here long enough, you will be exposed to the gospel long enough that you will, in fact, join the capital C Church. And in the same way, there are people down the street at the Baptist Church who may, in fact, be believers. I'm a Baptist, by the way. There are people down at the Methodist church who may be believers. There may be people down at the Catholic church who are believers. Even though I believe that the Catholic church has problems doctrinally. I have told you before, my parents were very involved in Bible study fellowship. Okay? If you're not familiar, it's an international Bible thing. People from all over the city of Fort Worth, there's a ladies one and a men's one, and I think there's a singles one, and they meet together. They do a very comprehensive Bible study. They have discussion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So my parents were involved in Bible study fellowship, and they would have people coming from Baptist churches and Methodist churches and Catholic churches and who knows what other kind of churches, all studying the Word of God, all, most, we hope, believers. And what that gave me was a rather expansive understanding. Now, do not think that that means that I don't believe theology is important. What we believe is very important. But it does explain why there's one word in this doctrinal statement, this paragraph, that causes me to pause. Not because I disagree with it. I totally agree with it. But it's just difficult to see at times, and that is the word unity. Because the world looks at the Christian church today, and the last thing they see is unity. So this is, if you will, aspirational. We are to try to work at keeping the spirit, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, rising above sectarian differences. So that's hard, and I know that's hard. It is like the scriptural admonition to speak the truth in love. And that has always and will always cause a tension. A tension. So, on with the doctrinal statement. Uh, that is the Greek word that we translate uh, church, ekklesia, 
If you jump down to uh, item D, it is an assembly of Christians gathered for worship in a religious meeting. Dot, dot, dot. IV says the whole body of Christians uh, scattered throughout the earth. There you see the two differences. You see the local congregation. Paul says, I visited this church, and it's a local congregation. And he sends a message to the church. That is all believers at all times. So how did all this start? I told you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. You remember the discussion. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, ah, you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, who knows what you are. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter gives the right answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, if you are a good Catholic, welcome to the class. If you are a good Catholic, you believe that his comment to you, Peter, I give the church. Peter being Pope number one. Therefore, he's talking about Peter being the rock upon which the church is built. But we understand that the rock upon which the church is built is the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You can build organizations, groups, companies, whatever it is, on a lot of different foundations. The church is built upon who Jesus is. And if that's not there, you might as well go join a bowling club. In fact, you might have more fun bowling. I don't know. Okay. That's why I think it's weird. There are atheist churches. You know that? They have atheist summer camps for their kids. I... It's just kind of weird. But (laughs) you can actually Google on YouTube videos of atheist camp songs. Now, they're spoofs, okay? I mean, and they're hilarious. So what do we learn about the church from this? It is built upon the foundation of the confession of who Jesus is and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, once again, it's kind of what Ben alluded to in our prayer time. Uh, We're in the here and now. We're living in what God has done for us, what he is doing for us, what he is going to do for us. And sometimes we just don't see the church withstanding the gates of hell. We have media that points out every time a Christian leader succumbs to moral temptation, and we begin to think, you know, the church is a pretty lousy organization. But once again, remember, there is the church, 
and there are local churches. And I, 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 I hate to remind you of this. It's just kind of needs to be brought out. Don't look at the person next, sitting next to you, but they're a sinner. <laughs> they were a sinner before they became a believer. They're probably a sinner after they became a believer. And sinners do sinner stuff. They just do. I've told you one of my favorite stories. I keep repeating it because it's so fun. Chuck Colson, in one of his books about the church, has a chapter entitled The Right Fist of Christian Fellowship. And to make a long story short, in the middle of church service, the deacons and the pastor get into a fist fight in the middle of church. And they were all carted up in, uh, in front of the judge, who I think was Jewish, and he said, your church may allow this, but the state of Massachusetts doesn't. Why? Because we're all sinners. Now, you would love to think that we are all directed by the Holy Spirit, and we would all always do the right thing. Well, we're all growing in grace, and some of us just don't grow very fast. So, Acts 2:42 to 47, another long passage, let me read it to you. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Okay, let's just stop right there. What is the church supposed to do? Okay? The church does lots of stuff. We have good music. We have, last week we had donuts by some miraculous thing. They just showed up. Uh, I'm told we serve pretty good coffee. I don't drink coffee, so I don't know. The church does lots of things, but what is the church supposed to do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, we don't have any apostles here, but we do have the apostles' teaching. The purpose of the church is to teach the gospel to share the gospel, to spread the gospel. That's what we do. To fellowship. What is fellowship? Hmm? Come on. You ever had any fellowship? Huh? Togetherness. Now, you know, I'm not saying that fellowship always requires food, but it helps. But fellowship are believers getting together to worship God. Now, they may be giving glory to God by singing music, by sitting here in this class, by sitting in the church service, by fulfilling the needs of the community. We tend to look at this as very narrow, but it's living life together. That is fellowship. And the breaking of bread, that can be eating or that can be the Lord's Supper that we're going to talk about in just a moment. Now, the rest of this causes us some trouble 
Maybe I should not read it. And all came over every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, it sounds like a bunch of communists. They were sharing all their stuff. They were giving to everybody that had need. Two observations. First, this is not communism, okay? Why? Nobody's holding the gun to their head and saying, give all your stuff. That's item number one. There is an interesting story in the book of Acts where these this couple says they sold everything they had and gave everything that they had to the church. Well, they had sold it. They just didn't give everything to the church, and they lied about it. And they were told, when it was yours, you were free to do whatever you wanted with it. Just don't lie to God. And they fell down dead. Just a warning. Secondly... Secondly, uh, we see later in the book of Acts, or later in the scripture, that this didn't actually really work because Paul had to eventually tell them, if you're capable of working and you're not working, we're not going to give you any food, okay? But what is the point? Forget all the, that side of it. What is the point? They were meeting the needs of the community, they were meeting the needs of the body. And they weren't doing this because somebody was beating them over the head with a two-by-four. They were, in fact, a community sharing what they had with each other. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13, For just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all are made to drink of one spirit. This goes on in 1 Corinthians to talk about the gifts of the spirit. And we're going to talk about that actually in a week or two. But it begins by talking about the unity. We are one body. Now, it uses the illustration. We are all not hands. If every part of your body was a hand, you would look weird and you wouldn't live. Okay? The church is made up of a collection of people. Human beings that have their own gifts, their own skills, their own interest, their own fill-in-the-blank, fill-in-the-blank, fill-in-the-blank. Do you remember the sermon from last week? 
The master gave one five talents, one three talents, one one talent. Now, when he says talents, he's probably talking cash. Well, chunks of gold or silver. But the observation is we have been given something. And whatever that something is, the church needs it. And we are to use that which God has given us for the good of the body. What does that mean? It means that you sitting in a pew and going home and never having any contact with anybody else is probably not helping the body. But the second observation is don't judge yourself by the other members in the body. Don't do that. You see, if I sit here and go, Billy Graham led 100,000 people to Christ one year, I'm toast. But guess what? God doesn't care. God cares. Are you faithful doing what you have been called to do where God has put you? That's what we are called to do. We are one body with Christ. Okay, Ephesians. Great verse. Let's go to the next one, though. Uh, the next one, before I put it up, is going to scare you. Okay? Oh, it went away real quick. Ephesians 5, 22 to 32 is always used to discuss marriage. But what does the last sentence say? I am saying refers to Christ and the church. So let's adjust the font a little bit. And let's talk about the larger stuff. Notice what it says. Christ is the head of the church. Who is the head of Christ's chapel? Don't say Cody. Don't even say the elder board, although that's a better answer than Cody. Don't say some group of people you don't like. Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. We are the body of Christ. Think about that. Think about that a lot. We're the body of Christ, and we're going to whack off body parts because we don't like them. That would be weird. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Christ took you when you were dead in your sins and he washed away those sins, 
cleansed it so that he can sanctify you. We talked about this two weeks ago. What a sanctify means, set apart for God. He is cleansing you. He is sanctifying you by the washing of the water and the word so that the church, his body, will be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. This is the promise that we have. And just as we talked about when we talked about your individual sanctification, sometimes you just get frustrated because you're not getting there faster. And I made the observation that oftentimes as we are being sanctified, we become more aware of our sins and we begin to think we're less sanctified when in fact the recognition of our sin is a sign that we are being sanctified. But nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. I know this sounds weird, but don't try to have church without Christ. It sounds weird, but people do it. Now, the next section of the doctrinal statement, and we're going to spend just a few minutes on this, has to do with the sacraments or ordinances. What in the world is a sacrament and what in the world is an ordinance? We believe that water baptism and the Lord's Supper are the only sacraments and ordinances of the church and that they are scriptural means of testimony for the church in this age. What does this mean? The doctrinal statement uses the word sacrament and ordinance as if they're interchangeable because depending upon where you came from, they may mean the same thing. Technically, they don't mean the same thing. So let me just remind us what the distinction is. A sacrament is actually a means of grace. What does that mean? If I partake in a sacrament, I am receiving grace by the mere participation in that action. An ordinance is a remembering. I grew up, as I said, in a good Baptist church, and we were very clear on the fact that when you participated in the Lord's Supper, which, by the way, you're going to do in the church service following this, when I participated in that, I am called to remember. I am called to examine myself, and I am called to remember the body and blood of Christ, and what he did for us. But the mere taking of the... Aren't these things neat? The mere taking of the bread and the juice doesn't add anything to it. It's the remembering what God has done. Now, many churches because part of this discussion of the doctrinal statement is to talk about how we are distinguished or different than other communities. Part of this uh, 
deals with the idea of sacraments. Most Protestant churches have two sacraments. And in that sense, we are in line with them. The Roman Catholic Church has seven. And on a good day, I can tell you all seven of them. On most days, I can't. But they are um, the communion, what they would call the Eucharist. They are baptism, which they do for infants to remove the taint of original sin. Marriage is a sacrament. The taking of holy orders, that is becoming a priest, is a, um, a sacrament. What that means is you can participate in one of those two, but not both. You can't be married and be a priest. You can't be a priest and be married, although there is an exception to that rule. And then the last one is last rites, and then there's two more in there somewhere. Huh? Confession? Okay. Anyway, it is the communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, that distinguishes us from the Catholics in a very uh, real way. And I use the word real because that's the difference. If you are a good Catholic, I know that in this container right here is a very small amount of grape juice. If you're a Catholic, it would be wine. But to a Catholic, once the priest gives the blessing over this, this liquid becomes the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. The bread becomes the body of Christ. Not a symbol, not sort of, that is the blood and body of Christ. And you go, that doesn't make any sense. Well, there is a philosophical discussion that explains why that's true. I've covered it before, but let me run through it very quickly. It comes back to a discussion. We did this a while back, didn't we? A, a discussion of Plato. Not Play-Doh, Plato. <laughs> what is this? It's a chair. Thank you. That's easy. What color is it? Who knows? What color is this? Beige? We'll go with beige. But you know, right, that that chair could be another color. I mean, you, I mean this is obvious, right? In fact, that chair could look very different. You go into your house and you have wooden chairs. You go someplace else and there's plastic chairs. So we know that this is a chair, but chairs can be different colors. So we refer to the color of this as an accident. Not an accident as in it just happened to happen, but an accident as in it is not part of the chairness of this chair. The essence of this chair is its chairness. Because somewhere there is the universal chair that this shares chairness with. 
the color, the shape, the material is just an accident. The priest blesses this juice, wine in the case of a Catholic church, and it becomes, in essence, the blood of Christ. Even though the accidents still are of red wine. Do you see the distinction that they're making? Now, the Protestants came along and said, eh, I'm not real sure about that. That doesn't make any sense to me. And they did that because the reason, well, let's be kind. The Catholics do that because that's what they believe to be true. But it also reinforces the necessity of a priesthood. And the, because they're the only ones who can say the magic words. And in case you don't know, we say the word hocus pocus. You know where we get that from? That's the magic words that get you from wine to the blood of Christ. And we strongly believe that all of us are called to be priest. So there is no magic formula to turn this. But Luther couldn't abandon it. He was willing to say there's only two, but he couldn't abandon this being the blood of Christ. A Catholic believes what is known as transubstantiation. The blood become, the, the wine becomes the, body of, the blood of Christ. A Lutheran believes what is known as consubstantiation. The blood of Christ is present with the wine, and the body of Christ is present with the bread. The rest of us kind of said, nope, it's wine, it's bread, let's remember who Jesus is. Does any of that make sense? Now... This is the next element of the doctrinal statement, but I put it here really for a reason. And that was to get back to the word a while ago that I said, doesn't cause me a problem, it's just we do fall short of it. Do you remember what that word was? Unity. Um, there's only one body of Christ. That's what the scripture teaches us. That body of Christ is made up of all believers at all times, in all places. And if you remember back to the doctrinal statement regarding the church, membership in the church is not based on membership or non-membership in any specific local congregation. But we have trouble with that. And over time, throughout history, we've killed people over that. Lots of people over that. I would like to encourage us not to do that. <laughs> Let me give you my kind definition, description, of why we have different denominations. 
This is my kind definition. There is a less kind definition, and I'll mention it in just a moment. The kind definition is that as we read the scripture, there are differences in how certain people understand certain passages with regard to doctrine and theology. We see it right here. What is in this cup? What is in this bread? And my kind definition is that we could spend all of our lives sitting in this room arguing about what's in that cup, or we can agree to disagree, and in order to not spend every day arguing about it, you will go form your local congregation and we form ours. A lot of it has to do with the nature of the church that we're talking about today. Uh, if you look in your doctrinal statement, the, the uh, constitution of the church, the front part of it, which is what we're talking about, is the doctrinal statement. The back half of it is, well, that's the constitution of the church. We are an elder-led church. We are also independent of any organization above this local congregation. Well, there are those who read some of these passages, and it says, you know, follow the apostles' teaching, which gives you the idea there is some kind of hierarchy. There ought to be a hierarchy. So if you're a Presbyterian, you have a presbytery that oversees the local churches. If you are, say, a Southern Baptist, which is what I grew up as, all the churches are independent, but they contribute money to missions and seminaries. Okay? I, I like that. That's a good thing. So is the church, is the local congregation independent, or is there a hierarchy? Once again, you see this debate. And I would contend that at some point you just say, you go form your denomination, we'll form ours, because we don't want to argue about it all day long. But that's my kind answer. My light, le less kind answer is sin. <laughs> I've told you about driving through North Carolina, middle of nowhere, and looking at all the little churches. And you drive into this little town, I wish I had taken a picture, but I didn't know I needed the picture until I crossed the, past the second church. It says, First Baptist Church of whatever this community was. And you drive a, a mile down the road, and there's a sign, the original First Baptist Church of. <laughs> and you go, you know there's been a fight. And you know that somebody at the original First Baptist Church looks back at those and goes, Argh. And you know that there's somebody at the new one going, ah, stuck in them. I mean, you know that, right? That's the way our egos work. And you know what? We need to not have that. As we've worked through the doctrinal statement, I've made it very clear. You know, with regard to salvation, we believe this, the Catholics believe that, the Church of Christ believes that. We could talk about predestination, and the Presbyterians believe that, and we believe this. And you know what? 
there's lots of things that we hold in common, but we have a tendency to only emphasize those things in which we disagree. And what I would encourage you to do is to not ever compromise your understanding of what God is teaching in the Bible, while at the same time acknowledging the fact that many of us are at different places in our walk, in our understanding, and we need to work for the unity of peace. I can sit up here and I can tell you that I think Catholic theology is wrong. My mother would tell you, when she was growing up, the Pope was the Antichrist. (laughs) And even she laughs at that now. God works in a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. We're going to get to heaven, and there, sitting at the end of the row, is going to be the Methodists, and you're going, gosh, I didn't even know the Methodists believe the Bible. (laughs) Well, a lot of them do, by the way. A lot of them don't. We might be surprised who's sitting at the end of the row. And what we don't want to think is, you know what? I called that person a stupid idiot one time. I probably shouldn't have done that because I just called a part of the body of Christ a stupid idiot. Oh, are you saying, Kyle, it doesn't matter what we believe? No, I'm not saying that. Do you see the tension? The capital C church is made up of all believers at all times, wherever they are located, regardless of what denomination church they belong to or don't belong to. It doesn't matter where they live. It doesn't matter what language they speak. It doesn't matter who they vote for on Tuesday. And somehow, some way, we need to work toward unity in the body of Christ. And I don't, I don't see that as some you know, great national program of we're going to form an organization to do this. It's just not getting ticked off at your Church of Christ neighbor next door. Okay, I told you I had long conversations with a co-worker who was, a, on the weekends, a pastor at a Church of Christ. And I finally told him, I said, I'm willing to include you in my circle of believers, and you're not willing to include me. And he said, you're right. (laughs) Now, fast forward a couple more years, and he said, you know, maybe you are in the circle. And guess what? That realization would not have come to him if I had spent two years bashing him over the head about why he was wrong. Now, I told him where I thought he was wrong, but I never bashed him over the head with it. And all of a sudden, he thought, well, maybe, okay, maybe, yeah, you have to be baptized to be saved, but you were baptized, so you're okay whether you know it or not. Well, whatever. So, um, finishing this off, the church is made up of all believers from all places and time. The local church may contain believers and unbelievers. Do you know why at least every 
second or third lesson, I share the gospel? Because we need to hear that. We as believers need to hear that. And somebody in here who isn't a believer needs to hear that. The church is distinct from Israel. We had a long discussion about this when we talked about dispensationalism. Okay? We believe that the church is not the replacement for Israel. It's just not. There were promises made to Israel. There are promises made to the church. The church is to pursue unity. That's the one right there that I sit here and go, oh, how do we do that? And the church, God has given the church two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And when you take this next hour, I stole these from the deacon on the way in. When you take these next hour, what you're supposed to do is examine yourself and you are going to realize what Jesus has done for us by shedding his blood and by the breaking of his body for us. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that we are the body of Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would demonstrate to a world in need that we love each other. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.